I'm so glad all of you braved the elements to make it to church today. It's amazing. It's good to see you. Give yourselves a hand. And if you're joining us online, we're not judging you. We're glad that you are warm and that you're safe. And we're looking forward to seeing you next week when, uh, when we'll have weather that's a little bit more appropriate for January in Middle Tennessee. Hope you all had fun this week. Been thinking a lot about my sister. When she was 10 years old, my sister, who's a year younger than I am, auditioned for a play and got a part in it. Now, this doesn't sound that extraordinary, but you would have to know my family because up until that time, we were not really uh, the kind of people that auditioned for and got parts in place. We were not really theater people, but my father was reading the newspaper in this small town where I grew up, Ritchie Suncoast Theater. It was this small little community theater right in the historic section of this tiny town, and they had an article or maybe it was an advertisement. They were looking for young girls to come audition to play a pretty big part in a pretty serious drama. And he asked my sister, do you want to do that? And she said, yeah, I'd like to give it a try. So she auditioned. I'm not sure if anybody else auditioned, but they selected her. And that began an interesting two, three, maybe four years in the life of my family because we all got um, what we called the theater bug. And what that meant was we did play after play. We auditioned for parts. We got into plays. There were, there were plays that we all did together. I mean, our entire family was in the cast of the play. And it was really kind of fun. It's especially fun if you're like 11, 12, might have been 13, the last one we did. You get to stay out late because you're working on this play for months ahead of time, like two, three rehearsals a week. And so you're there at the theater kind of late. And then when the play would run at Richie Suncoast Theater, we had a two-week run. Every night for two weeks plus a matinee on Sunday, and we'd be out late till like 10, 11 o'clock. I'm in sixth grade, seventh grade. I mean, this is, this is great. I mean, we were having a great, I learned about all kinds of things at Reach the Sun Coast Theater with the actors that we were working with in the early 1980s. Maybe some things I shouldn't have learned. Uh, but I learned a lot about the theater because in addition to being in the plays, sometimes I would run the lights. I'd be up in the, in the light booth in the back. Or I'd run a spotlight. And one time, I actually sat with the man who'd built up the theater and watched how he put together the sets for the show. And if you've ever been part of a production like that, you realize it's not just the people that are on stage. That's not all that's required to make the story work. Because there's people on stage, there's the star, there's the person in the musical who sings and acts and dances, and then there's the person in the chorus who can't sing or act or dance, like some of us had to do that. We kind of had the function of scenery to the guy that's a little bit more talented. But behind the scenes, there's not just the director. There's a stage manager. Uh, there's a person who managed the, they call the props manager, that who ma- manages all the physical things that you have to bring on stage and off stage. Every night we would come and we'd have makeup put on us by a makeup person. Oddly enough, I had not acquired that skill as an 11-year-old boy. He'd come and put makeup on us. And there was somebody who made who made costumes. There's a lot of people involved in making a play work. There's people in the story that you see in the front. And then there's people behind the scenes making it go. And maybe you've done a play. Maybe you've had that experience. Maybe it wasn't a play. Maybe you were part of a sports team. And if you've ever played football, which just for the record, 
I have not. But if you ever played football, there, there's all the guys on the field, but there's also a coach. There's the people that manage the equipment. There's somebody that has to cut the grass. There's lots of things that are required to make that work. And if you've ever had a job where you're part of a team, a lot of times your team will work and put together some really good information, a presentation, and then your boss takes it to his boss. And who gets all the credit? Your boss got the credit, but you all did all the work. There's a lot of people to making that thing work. And what we find is that in every story, there's what you see happening and what you don't see happening. In the last couple weeks here at church, we have been looking at the story of the world. In the first week, we said that, hey, the story of the world, that's not your story. The story of the world is, is God's story. And last week we looked at the fall of man, and it sounds like original sin entering the world, it sounds like that would be about people, about us, but we found that even in the fall of man, that story is still about God. It's still about God's acts of redemption, because immediately after the fall of man, God is putting into place a, a plan for our salvation. And this week, we're going to start to look at the answer to the question, what is my part? What's my part in this story? Because if we're honest, those other things are kind of interesting, but they're a little bit abstract, right? I mean, it's good to know that it's God's story, but we're still a part of it. And we want to understand what is it, what is it that we should be doing? What is it that God requires of me? If I want to play my part in the story, what do I need to do? And we are going to look at the life of Joseph, because Joseph is a really interesting character, has about 25% of the book of Genesis. There's a lot written about Joseph and a lot of really interesting things that he does, but there's one specific thing that we can learn from because it has to do with our part in the bigger story of what God is doing. Now, if you've been reading along in our chronological Bible, just a quick show of hands. How many of you have been reading along? Okay, so you're going to be really up on your Joseph. And what you're going to realize is that last week we did the fall of man. That was Genesis 3. Now we're in Genesis chapter 37. That's a lot of space. It's several thousand years. And lots of people, lots of events. And honestly, it's... Can we be real? In reading Genesis, I forgot how much stuff was in Genesis. There's a lot. I mean, here's just some highlights of the things that we missed. We missed we missed Cain and Abel. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. We missed Noah. We missed the flood. That's kind of a big deal. We missed the Tower of Babel, where we have languages coming into the world. We missed God giving a promise to Abraham that he would build a nation. We missed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's always a good part. Uh, and and those, are just, those are just some of, some of the events. But here's, here's words that I found all throughout uh, the, the 33 or so chapters of Genesis that, that we're missing. Um, we missed a lot of sin. We have hatred, jealousy, drunkenness, incest, rape, adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, homosexuality, which I was first exposed to in the Ritchie Suncoast Theater in the early 1980s, prostitution, sibling rivalry, dysfunctional families, human sacrifice, and polygamy, and I might have missed about a half a dozen. I mean, there's a lot in there, right? Can we be real? If they made a movie out of the book of Genesis, my kids would not be allowed to watch it. In fact, I'm not sure I would want to watch it, and if we're real honest, uh, there's Christians I know that would probably boycott that movie. 
Is that true? Now, this is not to say there's not good things in the book of Genesis. There's plenty, there's plenty of great things. We see acceptable sacrifices. I love the passage Johnny just gave us for the offering. We see the sacrifices, acceptable sacrifices from Abel, from Abraham, uh, from, from Jacob. We see God, God giving astounding promises. We see God showing his love and his mercy, his grace in a variety of ways. But there's a lot of stuff in there that's just nuts. And if you're not reading along with us, I want to encourage you to start because here's the deal. We're only 21 days in. And if you've fallen a little bit behind or you haven't started, you can get the Bible reading plan. You can start to catch. I'm going to let catch up. I can let you know in the time it takes you to watch a couple of television shows or maybe a few movies, you could actually get caught up. And here's the thing, guys. Reading Genesis is better than any movie you're ever going to watch at least any movie you're going to admit in church that you watched. Okay, so I'm just just going to encourage you, like, we're almost a month in, let's keep it going. But today we find ourselves with Joseph, and I need to give you just a little bit of backstory. And one of the things my wife and I talk about all the time, she says, you know, when you speak, sometimes you go really fast. She says, you have a lot of energy. People don't always have as much energy as you do. Maybe you should try to slow that down. And sometimes, I'm going to be honest, sometimes they try to slow that down. Today, we're not going to try that because we got a lot of stuff. And I want to get you out so that you can be the Methodist to the buffet, right? Isn't that our line? You want to, I want you to beat the Methodist to the buffet. So Joseph appears uh, late in the account of Genesis, and he is the the great-grandson of Abraham. Now, what you need to know about Abraham is God picks Abraham to be the father of a great nation, to be the father of all the Jewish people, which is kind of a funny thing, because Abraham, when God appears to him, he doesn't have any kids. He says, you know what, if you want me to be the father of a nation, maybe I should have at least one child through a set of circumstances and something you could read later if you haven't read it. Abraham and Sarah... They have a son when they, in the King James Version, are well advanced in years. They have a son. His name is Isaac. God wants to test Abraham. He tells Abraham, hey, I know that you love your son. I want you to bring him up on this mountain. I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him to me, which is a great thing to hear if you're a doting father. So Abraham brings Isaac up the mountain. And at the last minute, just as Abraham's got the knife and he's ready to sacrifice his son because he trusts God, God says, no. I, you know, I have prepared another sacrifice. You do not need, you do not need to sacrifice your son. After years of therapy, Isaac, I, Isaac has some sons and his sons are Jacob and Esau. And there's a whole lot of drama with Jacob and Esau, but Jacob becomes the father of Joseph. And Joseph isn't, isn't Jacob's only son, is he? Because <laughs> Joseph has 11, he has, he has 12 sons, 11 sons in addition uh, to Joseph. And you might be saying, man, that must have been some kind of woman. Well, sort of. I mean, Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. Uh, and, and the two wives, they weren't satisfied with the sons that they were giving to their husbands. So they provide, may, over Joseph's, over Jacob's strenuous objections, they provide their maidservants to Jacob to provide additional sons. So he ends up with 12 sons by four women, two of whom are wives, two of whom, two of whom are referred to in scripture as concubines, but only one of whom is his favorite. Rachel is his favorite wife, and Joseph is his favorite son. So uh, Jacob makes it very clear that Joseph is his favorite son. He actually gives him a physical representation so that all the other 11 brothers will know, hey, you're you're okay? This one, this one is my favorite. What what is the symbol? What, What is it? It's the coat of many colors, which means you haven't been reading in the CSB, because in the CSB it says it's actually a coat with long sleeves. But whether it was many colors or long sleeves, 
Joseph, the favorite son at age 17, he's got this actual, actual declaration that my father loves me the best. But that's not all. Because Joseph is given a series of dreams. And in his series of dreams, this is what God reveals to Joseph. He says, Joseph, uh, at some point in the future, your entire family is going to bow down to you. Now, Joseph was very smart in a lot of things. People skills were not something that he had developed in his teenage years. So he makes the mistake of telling his brothers who already hated him, hey, guess what? God gave me this vision. One day I'm going to be your master. Isn't that great? To which they said, we really hate you. I think think we want to kill you. And that's about where we pick up the story in verse 18 of chapter 37. You wondered if we ever get there. Here it is. Stand up. Uh, just to make sure we're moving, we got the blood flowing. And I'm going to read some of this, not all of it, because we'd be here a while. This is what happens. Joseph is sent by his father Jacob to check up on his brothers. They see him in the distance. And before he had reached him, they plotted to kill him. That's not a metaphor. They plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes the dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. You want to be our Lord? You want to be our master? We have something to say about that. But Reuben, who's the oldest brother and a paragon of virtue, one or two chapters before, he slept with one of his father's concubines. I'm telling you, if you haven't read this mess, it'll make you feel better about your own life. Reuben heard this. He tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness. But don't lay a hand on him. He intended later to come rescue him and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the long-sleeved robe that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water, so at least he didn't drown. And then the brothers, who were extremely concerned about his welfare and, and, and very worried about what they'd done, they were so concerned, they sat down and they ate a meal. Uh, Joseph's in the pit. He's screaming. He's crying for help. He doesn't know what's going on. His brothers are over here. They've got Chick-fil-A. They got it in takeout. They looked up. There's a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin. They're going down to Egypt. Judah, ever the opportunist, said to his brothers, Hey, what's in it for us? What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on. Let's sell him. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. We'll not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. Uh, As far as they're concerned, they've solved the problem of Joseph the dreamer. His father believes Joseph to be dead. Joseph has exited from their life. And in verse 36, we read, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. You've been standing for a long time. Go ahead and sit down. So now Joseph is in Egypt. He's about 17. He's 17 years old. That's what the text tells us. And his adventures are not done. He's just getting started because he's, he's now in the household of Potiphar, this Egyptian who is in charge of all of Pharaoh's guards, which is a pretty big responsibility. And Potiphar has a household. It turns out that Joseph has an incredible knack for administration, leadership, and management. Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of everything in his house except one thing, and that was his wife. But it turns out that Joseph, in addition to being the favorite of his father, uh, in addition to having the ability to interpret dreams and, and be favored by God, uh, and in addition to having skills of administration, leadership, and management, turns out he's also good-looking. Now, I have like three out of five of those things. I'll just let you guess which one. But Joseph's the kind of guy I want to be jealous of, right? So Joseph's so good-looking that Potiphar's wife makes a serious pass at Joseph. And 
and he refuses. Now, in fairness, the script does not tell us uh, what she looked like. But Joseph refuses the advances of Potiphar's wife, and she becomes increasingly frustrated that this young man, over whom she has presumably some level of authority or influence, will not sleep with her. She falsely accuses him of rape. Joseph ends up in prison, and he's in prison for something that he did not do. So now he's stuck in prison. His administrative skills come out once again. The guy who runs the prison actually says, you know what, Joseph, I'm I'm just putting you in charge of the prison. So he's in prison, but he's kind of running the place. And through a set of circumstances, ends up with an opportunity to interact with two of Pharaoh's servants and properly interpret their dreams. One of those men has an opportunity to go back to Pharaoh and say, look, while I was in prison, there's this guy there who's unjustly accused. We should let him out. But he doesn't do that. He forgets, and Joseph languages in prison for another two years until, through another set of circumstances, he actually ends up, at age 30, in front of Pharaoh, properly interprets prophetic dreams given to Pharaoh by God, and these are, this is the interpretation of the dreams. Pharaoh, there are seven years of plenty coming to the land of Egypt. We're going to have harvest so abundant, we'll need a special plan to store all the grain. But those seven years of plenty are going to be followed by seven years of famine. We need to use the seven years of plenty to be ready for the disaster that is coming. And then Joseph goes one step further. There's something you should never do. By the way, if you find yourself in, in, in front of an, uh, an all-powerful leader, he says, and I'm going to make a suggestion. Here's my suggestion. You actually should find a guy gifted in administration, management, and leadership who will be in charge of collecting all the extra and preparing for the famine that's coming. Pharaoh says, that is a remarkably good idea. You're the man. So Joseph, at age 17, is sold into slavery. Thirteen years later, he is second in command in Egypt. He's the equivalent of a vice president or a prime minister. He is running the show. And everything that Pharaoh dreamed came to pass, didn't it? There were seven years of plenty. And Joseph worked with the Egyptians to stockpile and store the grain and the food because right on time, the famine starts. Two years into the famine, Joseph's brothers and his family re-enter the story. Because the famine wasn't just in Egypt. The famine was also in Canaan, where they lived a little bit up into the northeast. And Jacob, their father, sends the brothers to Egypt and says, I've heard they have food. Go and buy food from the Egyptians. So the brothers, after uh, 20, maybe 22 years, after they sold Joseph into slavery, through a set of circumstances ordained and written by God, end up in front of Joseph, who does not immediately reveal his identity, but does a little bit of back and forth. It's kind of fun. And you can read about it. But finally, the time comes for Joseph to reveal his identity to his brothers. They are in a room by themselves. It's Joseph and his siblings. And this is what he says in chapter 45, verse 3. I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. I'll bet. Carrying guilt around for two decades to find yourself face-to-face with a man that you had clearly wronged without justification, who now basically had unparalleled power over you, I would be terrified. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near I'm Joseph, your brother, 
He said, the one you sold into Egypt. And I've called the guards, and they're at the door. I'm going to throw you into the, into the dungeon for about 13 years, just so we're even. That's not what it says. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's going to be five more years. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. You thought you were getting rid of your annoying kid brother. God was using your actions to preserve not just my life, but your own. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. How cool is that? What happens next is, is a lot of fun. It's a little bit of talking, and, and Joseph sends his brothers back to Cain. He says, I want you to get the whole household. Bring them all here. And Jacob, Joseph's father, now 130 years of age, is presented to Pharaoh and blesses him. And all of Joseph house, Joseph's household is settled in the land of Goshen. They come under the protection of of Joseph, and his father lives another 17 years. Jacob, the text tells us, dies at age 147. So it's now been, just to help you with the math, it's been about 40 years since Joseph was sold into slavery by his brother. It's been 17 years since he revealed himself to his brothers with an unqualified offer of forgiveness. His brothers have lived with guilt for 40 years, but apparently they've lived in fear for about 17. Because when their father dies, it says, his brothers said to one another, chapter 50, verse 15, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Hey, Joseph, daddy said, please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. And then his brothers add, therefore, please forgive us. Please forgive the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when the message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. And if you didn't see it before, in this moment it's so clear that the prophecies that God had given to Joseph in the form of dreams when he was just a boy have come true. And Joseph is sad because his brothers didn't believe him the first time. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, which is the salvation of many people. Therefore, I'll tell you again, don't be afraid. 
I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph understood something that his brothers failed to understand. Joseph understood that he was just a small part in a much bigger story that God is writing. And I actually brought an illustration of this. I'm going to ask Hunter to put it up. One of the fun things being here, so I look out, I see all these different flags, and I only know what some of them are, but I went online and I found this image. This is a mural made out of flags from several different countries. Some of them are repeated. Some of them, I think, are uh, kind of bound up or overlapped, but it's kind of pretty, right? I kind of like it. There's about 200 there because I I went and I counted and did the multiplication. It's about 200 flags. Uh, But what you can't see from this picture is that those flags are actually part of a bigger image. So I'm going to ask Hunter, give me the next one, Hunter. Uh, And and you you can start to see it here as we zoom out a little bit. But even more if we go all the way. Hunter, just go all the way to that last one. Isn't that kind of fun? Because each one of those small images has a, just a little part to play in a much, much bigger picture. And Joseph understood that about his role in the story that God was writing. Which brings us back to our question, what, what is our part? in the story. Go ahead, leave, leave it up there, Hunter. Leave it up for just a second. Now, I had a hard time counting these because there's so many little ones, like just going all the way across. It's about 4,200. A little bit more than 4,200 flags in this image to make it up. That's kind of neat. Do you know that in Scripture, all of Scripture, there are only 3,237 named characters? And I know that because I looked it up. I didn't count them. That would have taken too long. But according to Google, 3,237 named people in all of Scripture. And I'm guessing of those, you don't know the names of most of them because most of them are somebody in a genealogy somewhere or a king whose name and story you have forgotten. Joseph understood. I'm just, almost nobody. I mean, Joseph got like, he got a lot of airtime in the biblical narrative. But you realize There have been billions, tens of billions of people throughout history. Only 3,237 of them, which is less, which is significantly less than the number of small images here make up the picture that we have in Scripture of God's plan for the world. Our part in the story is not big. And even Joseph, even Joseph, understanding his part, do you realize there's something that he did that was remarkable? And it doesn't have to do with how he interpreted dreams. And it doesn't have to do with how he successfully uh, ran a household and then, and, then a, and then a prison and then a country. God had a plan for Joseph that was so much bigger than that, but only Joseph could make the decision to forgive his brothers. Think how different the story would have been had he not done that. Because in reality, he didn't have to. In fact, nowhere in the text does it say, God told Joseph to forgive his brother, so he was obedient. Joseph is exhibiting the character of God, whom he knows, and Christ, whom he has not yet met. Clearly, his brothers expected revenge. When they showed up and Joseph reveals himself to them, it says they were terrified. 
And they waited 17 years for Joseph to do which was within his right, which was in his, within his power, and which was absolutely within the social norms and mores of the day. At any time, Joseph could have taken his revenge. And his brothers, that whole 17 years, are thinking, as long as dad is alive, we're okay. But when dad goes, when dad is gone, we're worried that Joseph will kill us, sell us into slavery, or in some other way, try to gain his revenge. Only Joseph could forgive. What's our part in the story? I don't, I don't know the things that God has called you to do. I don't know what they are. But I know that forgiveness is part of your story. God called Joseph to do something incredible. The physical salvation of not just his own family, but of an entire nation and of a region. Something that makes history. Something, something that we read about something that we celebrate thousands of years after it happened. Do we have that kind of influence? Joseph thought he was a small part in the story, and we want to be like Joseph. Like, we pray for that kind of opportunity. Wouldn't you like to be second in command to Pharaoh or better? I mean, why not just pray to be Pharaoh? But even even at that level of of giftedness, of accomplishment, Joseph says that's just a small piece of what God is doing, and we may not be called to do that. That may not be what God calls us to do. We may just lead a normal life, doing a normal job, raising a family, but forgiveness, forgiveness is part of your story. Because if Joseph not forgiven his brothers, the whole thing doesn't work. And the reality is that when Joseph told Pharaoh, you need to find a guy, you need to find a guy to run the whole show for you, Pharaoh could have got another guy, He got a two or three or four other people. He said, yeah, you know, I think that's a great idea, but I actually want an Egyptian to be in charge of the Egyptians, in which case Joseph would still have had the opportunity and the choice to not hold his brother's sin against them. I don't know what God has called you to do. I don't. But I know whatever it is, forgiveness is part of your story. Last week, when we were looking at the fall and we talked about sin, I talked about how we can put sin into three different categories. Do we remember what they were? There's sin that happens out in the world. It's kind of abstract. You read about it in the news. That would be war. It would be, it would be school shootings. It would be, it would be um, something that happened in another city that doesn't feel like it has any relationship to us, something that happens to somebody else. Then there's sin that we commit. There's the things that we do to other people, things that we know are wrong, but we do them anyway for whatever reason it is that we do them. And we're really good at rationalizing our own sin. We think that's wrong, but it's not really that wrong. And most people actually would have done worse. So really, I can kind of stand justified before God because I'm not as bad as the other person. In fact, I've never killed anybody. I'm actually doing God a favor by being on his team. That's that's how most of us think about sin. But then there's the sin that's hard to get over, and that's kind of the middle category we talked about. There's the sin that's done to us, the sin that is committed against us. Just like sin was committed against Joseph, everyone in here has been the victim of somebody else's wrong actions. And some of it's been really, really bad. And you're saying, Ken, if they made a movie about my life, you wouldn't want to watch that one either. You might be right. I don't, I don't want to see that movie. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry 
that those things have happened to you. And I don't pretend to understand what God's plan is in those actions. I don't pretend to understand God's plan in the story that he is writing for you. But your part in that story, forgiveness is part of it. Because because if we hold on to it, what's the choice? What's the choice? Are we going to harbor rage and bitterness and fantasies of revenge? Are we going to construct these elaborate ideas in our head? You know, if actually I ever end up being that guy's boss, like I'll actually, I'll show him. Do we nurse it? Do we nurse it inside our hearts, inside our souls, the wrong that was done to us? Like we use it as, as an excuse for other things. I get it. I get it. It's human, but it's not what we're called to do. Forgiveness is part of our story. Are we bitter? I used to work with a man who quoted an old saying that being bitter is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Is that us? It wasn't Joseph. God gave Joseph this big, incredible task to do. And he did it, but I'm not sure it's the most significant thing that Joseph did. The most significant thing that he did was not hold his brother's sin against them. And wherever we are in our story, forgiveness is part of that. So my question for us this morning is, what would it look like if we were part of a community that freely forgave everybody here? Everybody here has an image a person, an action in your mind when I talk about forgiveness. I don't know who it is, but all of us have been wronged. I was fired once for something I didn't do. How much does that play out in my mind? A lot, a lot of the people we need to forgive, their name starts with X. Ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, ex-husband, ex-wife, ex-boss. Ex-employee. Forgiveness is part of that story. You won't move on without it. Fear and guilt consumed Joseph's brothers for 40 years, but it never consumed Joseph. And which one do we admire? Maybe, maybe it was your dad. He wasn't there. Maybe your dad was there and that was the problem. Maybe, maybe it was your mom. I mean, she wanted to be a good mom. She just wasn't. It wasn't her thing. Maybe it was a, might have been a stepmom, a stepdad. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a friend that you feel betrayed you. Maybe, maybe this week someone didn't meet an expectation that you had and trust was broken. And you, you have a choice. Forgiveness is part of your story. Let it go. Let it go. Joseph freely forgave a wrong against him that most of us cannot even imagine or comprehend. And as we look at the bigger picture of God's story, all the little pieces, all the little pieces that fit together, each one of us is one of those pieces. I don't know what God's called you to do. Ephesians 2.10 says that before the beginning of the world, God prepared good works in advance for you to do. I don't know what they are. But I know that in your relationships with others, forgiveness needs to be part of the story. Like Joseph, we must freely 
forgive. And I'm going to invite our, our band to come forward. And as they come forward, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us in a prayer of forgiveness. Whenever, whenever we look at texts that have the, cap- the possibility of being this personal, never know what's going to happen. Because God's doing something in the life of each person here. There's parts of your story I don't know, I'll never know. And the things that brought you here, I mean, everyone here could have stayed home. No one would have judged you, and yet you came. And if you're online watching, you didn't need to watch. We don't even know that you're watching. And yet you heard this message. So I'm going to pray for us. And if you want to pray uh, with, with me or with, uh, with Johnny, we'll be over on your right at the next steps just after the service. Want to make sure that forgiveness is part of your story because without it, you're stuck. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in Scripture, you have given us a model of forgiveness. Joseph not only freely forgave his brothers, but he blessed them. He blessed the men who persecuted him which is what you tell us to do. He forgave the men who trespassed against him. We would learn from his example, and we would learn from your commands, and we want to forgive the people uh, in our lives who have hurt us. Maybe it's an ex-somebody. Maybe it's as simple as an expectation that was not met by someone, we might, we might be suffering bitterness, hate, and resentment for somebody that doesn't even know that he's wronged us. Father, would you help us to live at peace with all men in our hearts Would we set aside the bitterness, the judgment, the desire for revenge and for payback? May we be a community of people that freely forgives. In Jesus' name, amen.